Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, the scriptures, most of the scriptures I'm going to cite will be up there on the screen. But the bulk of the message today will be in Acts chapter 16. Okay. Uh, Psalm 149, verse 6, the theme verse for our series on uh, praise as a weapon. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 22. Then the multitude arose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This is talking about Paul and Silas during Paul's second missionary journey. at the uh, uh, They were at the city of Philippi. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your household. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately all, he and all his family were baptized. Fathers, we continue on uh, examining prayer, praise as a weapon. Lord, I pray that it will penetrate our hearts, Lord, and that we will participate in it. Lord, when we praise you, Lord, lift up your holy name. It means that the enemy is defeated. No matter what kind of trials and tribulations he may tr seek to put upon us, Lord God, you are still on the throne. And as such, we need to praise you in all that we think, say, and do. So, Lord, help us to think and meditate upon this message and most of all, put it into practice in our daily lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been... Talking about the weapons of God, part of our larger series on spiritual warfare. And uh, it says in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we war after the uh, war, walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not of this temporal, physical world that we live in, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. We've talked about this before. The weapons include the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, prayer in the Spirit, fasting, the name of Jesus, and the blood of the Lamb and the Word of our testimony. And recently we've been covering the high praises of God, Psalm 149, verse 6. Okay, so we've seen that the praises of God are a weapon. And it says a weapon is real as the word of God. Both are described as a two-edged sword. And uh, the, the word of God is described as such in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And as we've seen also, it's applied to the high praises of God in one, Psalm 149, verse 6. So the same object, a two-edged sword, is to des- used to describe both. But how can praise be a weapon? It's a weapon helping us to overcome rejection and fear, which can lead to depression. Even Elijah, Jonah, and Paul suffered from depression. Paul says that he despaired even of life. So, and uh, of course... Elijah was so depressed that he asked the Lord to take his life, and the same thing was true of Jonah. So if you suffer from depression, there's no shame in this. But praise back beats the lies of the devil who says that God doesn't care. And make no mistake about this, depression often comes directly from the prince of darkness. Now, one of the exceptions to this and is what they call clinical depression. And there's things that cause clinical depression. Sometimes it's a chemical imbalance in uh, your brain. And in that case, a lot of times you can take antidepressants such as Prozac that will help you overcome this clinical depression. And uh, Satan will use this too, this clinical depression against this. There's examples of uh, depression that uh, people experience in the, uh, the Bible, and their praises of God help them overcome this. This was true of King Saul and uh, King David, uh, the future King David. Saul would suffer from depression. An evil spirit would come and trouble him, and then he'd call for David, and David would sing the praises of God on his uh, uh, harp or his lyre, and that helped him to overcome it. Thank you, Lord. Um, Examples of uh, praise as he used as a weapon. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story found in Second Chronicles chapter 20, which is that of King Jehoshaphat of the na- uh, when the nation of Judah, his nation of Judah, was under attack by three different armies. And he went to the Lord. He, had the, he called a prayer meeting and a time of fasting for the entire nation. So they prayed to the Lord, and uh, uh, the Lord spoke to Jehoshaphat through a prophet, 
And uh, the prophet told him, you don't need to fight this army. Just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, he did. He was directed to send out his enemy, his army to confront the enemies. But as they went along, they, he preceded the army with uh, the singers from the temple that would, uh, were singing about the holiness of God and uh, to praises to God and that his mercy endures forever. And through that, my personal opinion is what happened was that the evil spirits that were operating behind these enemy armies got confused and the armies began to attack one another. And by the time uh, Jehoshaphat's army got there, they were all dead. And then they spent three days picking up these spoils of war. So praise was definitely a weapon that was used by God through the singers of uh, the nation of Judah to defeat the enemy. Last week we looked at praise in the early church and we saw that uh, it was the early church was actually founded on praise. The Holy Spirit fell on the church at the day of Pentecost and they all spoke in tongues as the Spirit of the Lord gave them utterance and they didn't know what they were saying but they spilled out into the streets and all of the foreigners that were there in the uh, uh, city to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, they heard them speaking in these other tongues and they were speaking their native languages. And they said, these men do proclaim to us the wonderful works of God. So the church on the day of Pentecost was actually founded through praise. We also saw that praise became a normal part of their daily life. It talks about uh, six or seven things in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says one of the things that they were doing, the you know, besides the breaking of bread and the listening of the teaching of the word of the apostles, is that they were daily praising the Lord. They praised God even though persecution confronted them. First in Acts chapter 4, when they were warned not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus, they went on ahead and kept on doing it because, as Peter put it, we ought rather to obey God than man. And then they f faced physical persecution, not just the warning, but physical persecution when they were beaten. And it said they went their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they praised the Lord uh, <clears throat> during right in the midst of persecution too. So they were living out Paul's words where he said, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Okay, so... Today we're going to continue talking about praise in the early church and we're going to go into detail in that story which I mentioned is Acts chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible, if you would uh, uh, <clears throat> read that 
I'll have the uh, scriptures up there on the board, but uh, you might want to refer to the Bible at the same time. Now, the groundwork for this story is Paul is in his second missionary journey. The first missionary journey, he had gone with uh, uh, Barnabas and they established churches throughout Asia Minor. Asia Minor is in modern-day Turkey. I'm going to show that up for you in a map uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, But anyway, they went through into the interior of Asia Minor, and it was in the Roman province, uh, mostly of Galatia. That's where uh, the Apostle Paul would later write his epistle to the Galatians. Okay, so... He and Silas went back there to strengthen the churches that they had established during Paul's first missionary journey. And while they were there, you know, Paul felt led to start evangelizing new territory. However, God forbade them to do that in the uh, province, the Roman province of Asia, which is in western Turkey today. Instead, he feels directed to go into Uh, Macedonia, which is in northern Greece uh, today. And you read this story in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Before getting into the heart of this story, a few things I, I feel like I need to point out to you. Point number one is Paul and Silas were sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They felt like God wanted to, them to evangelize this new territory, but the question was where? And they went through Bithynia and some of the other regions which were uh, uh, in Asia, in uh, uh, the Roman province of Asia, but every time the Holy Spirit said no. And so they wound up in a city called Troas, which is on the... Uh, western seaboard of modern day Turkey. And there Paul receives this vision and he sees a man in this vision dressed in Macedonian clothing and saying, come over and help us. And he took from that to mean that God was calling them to go into Macedonia, which again is in modern day uh, Greece. So Paul and Silas were sensitive to the holy leading of the Holy Spirit. And in order to live, lead a successful Christian life, you must learn to also hear His voice and follow, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life too. Point number two. Their initial experience on this journey is going to result in pain through and suffering through heavy persecution. Uh, But then again, Paul was used to it by now. One of the cities that they had uh, evangelized in his first missionary journey was a city called Lystra. And in this city, they suffered such heavy persecution that Paul was actually stoned. And they dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. But, uh, you know... If he was dead, God raised him from the dead because God was not finished with Paul at that uh, uh, point. In fact, later on at the close of his life, Paul would tell Timothy, 
All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So all of us, if we're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we're going to suffer persecution in one way or another. You know, it's something we need to get used to. And take it, you know, the same attitude as uh, uh, the apostles did. Remember I, I told you that after they had been beaten for the name of Jesus Christ, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for uh, his name's sake. Now that means that just because you are experiencing trials and tribulations doesn't necessarily mean that you are out of the will of God. They were squarely in the will of God as they went there to Macedonia. Remember, they had the leading of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you're uh, out of the will of God or not following His direction. Now, at this point, I wanted to uh, read something to you. Uh, how many of you remember this? I passed it out to everybody in the church. It was probably a, a over, almost two years ago because I was talking to Sean. And Sean and Grace have been a part of the church for over a year and a half now. And they said that they never got it. So, uh, you know, I'm going to order more of these because these are really dynamite. How many of you still have them? Who's got, who's got the, this new believer's Bible? Okay, next question. Are you reading it? I didn't read it for you just to throw it on your bookshelf and let it gather dust. There's a lot of really good stuff in this. And this is, you know, the New Living Translation. It reads very easy. You know, it's very easy to understand. But almost as important as the actual word is the notes that Greg Laurie, you know, the founder of Harvest Christian Fellowship and uh, the Harvest Ministries. Uh, he's kind of the modern day Billy Graham. And he's got notes in here. And aside from the kind of the uh, general informational notes, he's also got these uh, little things that he, he, he's got three classes of them. Uh, one he uh, calls cornerstones. And the cornerstones are the foundational principles of the Christian faith. How many of you know the foundational principles of the Christian faith? You should know them. Now, he, he calls this the New Believer's Bible. And maybe you looked at that title and you said, well, I'm not a new believer. This doesn't apply to me. Brothers and sisters, believe me, it applies to everybody. Everybody needs to know those foundational principles of the Christian faith. Everybody needs to know the cornerstones. And then he has another class called the first steps. And these are kind of the uh, baby steps that we take when we get saved. And the baby steps are applying these principles. And finally, he has what he calls off and running. And that's how to achieve victory in your Christian life. How many of you want victory in your Christian life? You know, the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he said that we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
Okay, we're all supposed to be running this race. God wants us to have victory. He said in Paul said in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter nine verses twenty four through twenty seven, he said that we are to run this race. We are to run it. You know, he says, don't you know that everybody who runs in a race, everybody runs, but one receives the prize. So run that you might obtain. Run the race of life so that you're going to win it. How many of you want to win the race? So often we just sit back and, you know, we just let things happen to us. We're to apply all of these first principles into our daily lives so that we can get the victory. Okay? Now, uh, continuing our story. I'm sorry, I I haven't read what uh, Greg Laurie had. I I brought this because I wanted to read one of his uh, first steps on there. You know, that was the uh, second class there. The first steps are like the baby steps that we uh, uh, take. Okay? And... This is in his uh, Greg Laurie's note on uh, Mark chapter uh, 4, verses 35 through 41. Now, that's the story. You know, you remember the story where, uh, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Hey, boys, everybody pile into the boat. We're going to go over to the other side. Remember that story? Now, what they were doing is they were rowing all the way across the Sea of Galilee. If you look at your Bible map, you'll find out that the Sea of Galilee is about 10 miles across. So that was a long trip. And they all get into the boat and they're rowing and everything. They're doing what Jesus told them. Notice it was Jesus' will that they get into that boat. And what happened while they're rowing? A big storm blows up and it must have been a huge one because you had seasoned fishermen in that uh, boat that were used to these things. You had Peter and Andrew, his brother, and then you had James and John. They were fishermen by trade. They'd often gone out in these boats and even they were scared. You know, the the uh, gale, the wind, and the waves were so fierce they were scared to death they were going to die out there. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus is, you know, just exhausted from all of his ministry and everything. And he's sleeping soundly. And so they shake him awake. And they said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And he said, of course, you know, oh, you of little faith. He stood up and he said, uh, told the wind to die down. And the sea became calm. And they were just awestruck at that. Who is this man that even the uh, wind and the waves obey him? Okay? So, one of the big points in the matter is Jesus told them to do that. Now, just because he told them to do that didn't mean that they weren't going to run into that storm. So you can be following the Lord doing exactly uh, in the center of his will just as Paul and Silas were. And all of a sudden... The storms of life arise and you go through trials and tribulations. Now, this is what Greg Laurie says about the uh, story. He says, 
I'm going to read this. Everybody pay attention. You know, don't go to sleep on me just because I'm reading from this book. Because what he says there is really right on. And this has got principles that you can apply to your own life. He says, this story illustrates how God is in control of even the most desperate of circumstances. Here we find the disciples, several of whom were seasoned fishermen and sailors, frantically worried that they would perish in this storm. Although Jesus was with them, they thought it was that he was oblivious to the severity of their situation. So you might be going through these storms and you're saying, God, you don't, uh, uh, you don't, Jesus, you don't even know what I'm going through. Well, he knows. He knows exactly what you're going through. Yet Jesus wanted them to learn three important lessons. Number one. Jesus is aware of your situation. Although Jesus, being human, needed physical sleep for his weary body, he was still fully aware of his surroundings. Through the shrieking of the wind did not, though the shrinking of the wind did not wake him, the cry of one of the, his disciples did, and he responded immediately and powerfully. He said, "Peace be still to the wind and the waves." Psalm 121 verse 3 says, He will not allow, let you uh, stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber or sleep. Number two, Jesus will answer your call for help. When the disciples woke him, Jesus calmed the storm that had so frightened them. He will do the same for you in the midst of your storms and trials. Sometimes he lets us reach the point of desperation so that we will recognize that he is our only hope. He wants us to remember that he is on board with you. And number three, you can make it through. You're undergoing storms in life. You can make it through. Though every one of us is going to face hardship, but the children of God have the promise that God's presence is with us in the midst of the storm. What did he tell us? I will never, no, never, no, never leave you nor forsake you. As Jesus didn't leave his disciples, so God will not leave us stranded in the midst of our problems. Although he doesn't promise smooth sailing, he never promises smooth sailing, contrary to what the health and wealth gospel preachers say. He does promise us safe passage. Paul reminds us, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus, Christ Jesus returns. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Okay. So, let's keep that in mind when we go through these trials and tribulations. God is trying to do something in his life, in your life. Don't fight him. Amen? Okay. Now, continuing our story. Paul and Silas wind up in the city of uh, Macedonia, 
this city happened to be named Philippi. Okay, so if you look here at the, uh, I know you can't read the uh, uh, n- names here. Okay, they start. He, Paul started his second missionary j- journey here in Antioch, and he went to uh, Tarsus first, and then to these cities here in the province of Galatia, and that included uh, Derby, and uh, uh, here's Lystra right here where he, uh, Paul got stoned, and uh, uh, Pisidia, Antioch. He winds up here at Troas, and that's where he receives the vision of the man of Macedonia. So they went across here. This is Greece, this, this peninsula. This is modern, even to this day, is modern-day Greece. And he winds up in Philippi. He would also go later on to... Uh, Philippi is where... The church where he wrote the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And Thessalonica, first and second Thessalonians, that's where that was written. Later on to Corinth here, uh, where he wrote the epistles to the Corinthians. And finally, Ephesus, that's where Ephesians was written to. But right now he's here in Philippi. Okay, while he's there at Philippi, he, they, uh, Paul and Silas meet a woman by the name of Lydia who responded to their message of salvation and invited them to stay in her home. That's Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. During this time of staying there in Philippi, they encountered this slave girl who performed fortune-telling as she was uh, uh, possessed by the spirit of div- uh, divination. Now this the spirit that was operating this woman kept on pestering them, and Paul and fi- Silas finally cast out that uh, uh, demon of uh, divination. Now what she would do is she would say, these people, she, she's pointing them out to the crowd around there, these people are Servants of the Most High God who are showing us, the King James Version says, the way of salvation. Now you read that and you think, well, why does Paul get annoyed about that? Isn't she giving them uh, uh, free advertising? Well, actually, she didn't say the way of salvation. I'd heard before that she was actually saying a way of salvation. And, you know... Uh, Just to make sure I know what I'm talking about, I looked it up, uh, you know, while it's preparing us, and it does. It says a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. Oh, they're just showing you another way of salvation. That's all they're doing. And this is what the devil does, is uh, point number three. Satan always seeks to manufacture counterfeits. That's what the cults are all about today. That's what all these false religions like uh, Islam that are out there. Those are just counterfeits. They're Satan's counterfeits for the real thing. And if you're not careful, you'll get swayed by them. Okay, so beware of the counterfeits that are out there. Point number four, and I've talked to you about this, is that demons are subject to us in Jesus' name. Now, when we are covering the name of Jesus, remember I pointed out this story. 
Paul said to the Spirit, he didn't speak to the woman, he spoke to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says that it came out of her, the Spirit came out of her that very hour. So the power of God is always greater than the power of Satan. We know this also from Moses when he was in Pharaoh's court. The miracles that Moses is uh, uh, working are duplicated by the sorcerers in Pharaoh's court. But Moses' power was stronger than the, court, uh, the one uh, in the spirit behind the uh, uh, sorcerers in Pharaoh's court. You can see this, they both duplicated, uh, the, the sorcerers duplicated that uh, uh, miracle of throwing down your staff and it became a snake. What happened? Moses' snake swallowed up the other snakes. The power of God was greater. And then, of course, uh, an earlier story there in the book of Acts in chapter 13, Paul, the apostle Paul encounters Elimus the sorcerer. And this sorcerer tries to lead the uh, uh, man uh, that they were preaching to away from the faith. You know, a high official in that section of the Isle of uh, uh, Crete, modern-day Crete. I'm sorry, not Crete, the modern-day Cyprus, okay? And uh, so the Apostle Paul looked at him, and he called him a child of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. He gave him a real tongue lashing. And then he says, you know, uh, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you shall be blind for a season. And it says that uh, mist of darkness fell on Elimus the saucer, and so he couldn't find his way around, and he looked for somebody that would grab him by the hand. And the... Uh, a uh, high official saw the power of God and he was converted right there. He saw the power of God was more powerful than the power of sorcery. Okay, now look at verse 19. But when her masters, this is the slave girl's masters. Remember, she's bringing them much money by her fortune telling. He saw that their, their hope of profit was gone. In other words, this uh, uh, girl with the spirit of divination, she was the real deal. She had that spirit of divination. And what she said was coming true. And now the masters, see, they can tell right away that she's had this spirit cast out of her. I don't know exactly what she said, but they could see that it was cast out of her. And so they got really mad, saw their, their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Okay, so here you had the challenging counterfeit, which is the occult. So point number five, there is great power in the occult and it comes from the prince of darkness. And it's delegated to his minions, the demons. That power will continue to reside in objects associated with the occult. And therefore, you have, if you've ever been involved in this, you need to de completely destroy any object that is associated with the object. 
So if you got a Ouija board and you used to play around with it, and even though you don't do it anymore, you need to burn that Ouija board. Don't leave it laying around because the spirit will still be there. And of course, there's always going to be the temptation to do it. If you've got tarot cards, burn them. Anything astrological charts, burn them. Completely get rid of them. That's the only way that you destroy the power of that spirit over you. I had a teacher my final year of Bible college, and he said, if you get yourself involved in the occult, it's like you've made a pact with the devil himself. And you've got to break that pact, not just repent from it, you've got to destroy it too. Burn up that pact, so to speak. Okay? And now we come to the heart of the story. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 25. Then the multitude rose up together against them, Paul and Silas. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, the jailer put them into the inner prison, put them, you know, the most secure location in the prison, and even fastened their feet into stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas, what were they doing? Oh God, why'd you let me suffer like that? They weren't feeling sorry for themselves, were they? Were they? What were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And they're probably wondering, how can they do that? They, these, these men have just suffered. They've gotten beaten so severely, their feet fastened in the stocks, they can't move around or do anything. They, they, instead of uh, feeling sorry for themselves and being, or being embittered towards this God that they serve, they're praying to Him and they're singing hymns. They're praising Him. So, Paul and Silas refused to let their circumstances get them down. You know, their backs must have hurt terribly, and now they're unjustly imprisoned, and, you know, being in, uh, fastened in the stocks, they didn't even have the freedom of movement. But they were following what Paul would later write, as I've quoted to you several times already today, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. They followed that to the letter. You notice also, it says the prisoners were listening to them. And guess who also was probably listening to them? Probably the jailer, right? You think he heard? Now, since the jailer had uh, a family, he'd probably been in, in this profession for many years. And he was probably an older, hardened individual. Uh, he'd probably seen just about anything, anything and everything in this, press, uh, the, this profession he had. 
but he doubtlessly had never seen anything like this of his prisoners singing hymns and pray, hymn, uh, songs of praise to their God and praying to him. Now these praises and hymns that they were singing will were probably undoubtedly soothing to the jailer because it says that he was asleep when the uh, uh, earthquake happened. You know, so he he listens to the hymns. What's that? You know, not a really big deal. It must have been been impressive to him, but he still went to sleep. But he was in for a rude awakening. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 13, 16. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening, awakening from his sleep, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm. For we are all here. So the jailer knew the penalty for his profession for allowing prisoners to escape was death. And his family would probably maybe suffer the same fate too. They might have killed the jailer's family if he allowed his prisoners to escape. So he didn't want to uh, face that and he tried to kill himself. But notice that Paul wasn't embittered towards the jailer at all. In fact, he was concerned about him. He said, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So, here in the midst of all their suffering, God intervenes and puts an end to it, to the suffering that Paul and Silas, <clears throat> what Paul and Silas were enduring. You know, Warren Wiersbe was a great pastor, radio. I, I first heard of him, you know, on the radio, on family radio, when uh, I first really uh, got serious with the Lord. And I remember him talking about the trials that we face when we go through the pressure cooker of trials. You know what he said? He said, when you go through trials... God is right there and he has one hand on the thermostat and the other hand on the timer. He knows when the time is up, when you've been, he won't let you be tried in above and beyond what you were able to bear. So he's got his hand on the thermostat and he knows when to put an end to that trial. And in this case, he put an end to the trial that Paul and Silas were enduring. Look what happens now. Verse uh, 29. Then the jailer called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he, the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, and these, you probably heard this word quoted before. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, 
and your household. And immediately he took them at the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and his family were baptized. So through all this suffering and everything that Paul and Silas endured, it resulted in the salvation of the jailer and his household. So the result of their suffering, the jailer meets the living God. The jailer called for the light. But you know what? The light was there before them, before him. It was present there in Paul and Silas, the light of the gospel that he was about ready to receive. What must I do to be saved? So, you know, it's been pointed out. Uh, I remember I took a uh, class on First uh, <clears throat> Corinthians, and uh, he was talking about, he was referring back to this passage there in Acts, and he said that the bailer, uh, jailer here might not have been thinking so much of spiritual salvation as much as physical salvation due to the jail now being wide open to the elements. And that explains Paul's statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, a lot of people misinterpret this saying as an indication that if you're a believer, you can automatically claim the salvation of your entire household. You're all your relatives. They're going to get saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house, it says in the King James Version. Well, the problem is, that's not always uh, the truth. You know, because later on, and this was the context that uh, uh, Ron Walrobe was uh, putting this in, is you don't know what's going to happen. You know, we were you know, studying the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 there. He, he makes this statement. How do you know, O wife, that you will save your husband? And how, O oh husband, do you know you're going to save your wife? The answer, you don't know. Now, God wants to save your husband or wife, your unsaved relatives. It says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, He wants everyone to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's word. That's God's will. He wants everybody to be saved and come to repentance. But he will never override their own free will. That's something we have to get through our heads. You know, if people are determined that they don't want a relationship with the living God, then you can't make them do anything. God can't make them do anything, much less you. So start stop trying so hard to get people saved, you know, your loved ones saved. You pray for them, you lay the groundwork, you give them the gospel, and then you let God the Holy Spirit have His way with them. But if they're determined that they don't want God, then, you know, God lets them go. You know, it's been said that there's two kinds of people in the world. The person that says to God, Thy will be done. 
and in the people to whom God says, Thy will be done. Your will be done. You don't want you don't want me, you don't have to have me. Whosoever will may come, but if you want to turn your back on me, that's your own free will. That's your own free choice. Okay. So, one Robo said, I'm sorry to put a powder keg under that process, but it's not always true, you know, that you, know, you can get saved and your whole house is going to. Okay, I'm almost finished here. Epilogue. And the jailer took them in the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and his family were baptized. So the Philippian jailer and his family get saved. And I have a feeling that some of the prisoners got saved too. They said the, to themselves, the God that these men worship must be God. So he got, uh, the jailer and his family got saved. And he showed his faith was genuine by his compassion now towards Paul and Bilas, uh, Silas. You know, washing the uh, stripes on their back. Verse 35. And it, when it was the day, the magistrates sent the uh, officers saying, Let those men go. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now, what's he talking about there? He's, he's saying we're Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you know, you, uh, you got a first-class treatment over there. He says, they've beaten us publicly, and even though we weren't condemned, nobody put us on trial. And then they found out that they were Romans, and they got very, very afraid. You know, the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. Later on, he would use that, you know, uh, to avoid uh, this uh, beating, you know, that was in his... Uh, later imprisonment. And this, by the way, this is also why, you know, you study church history. You know, church tradition says that Peter was crucified. He was crucified. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner of my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. But Paul was not crucified when he was martyred. Instead, he is, uh, uh, they, they cut off his head. The reason why he, Paul was not crucified was because he was a Roman citizen. Okay. Now, this would have tempered any further persecution to the church there at Philippi. Because if there was any persecution, then this matter of uh, them beating Paul and Silas, Roman citizens, that incident would have come up. So, what does this mean for us? It means that God can turn things around in your life in an instant. He can turn that heater in the press pressure cooker of trials in your life off in an instant. But we need to show our faith in Him by continuing to praise Him in spite of circumstances, however impossible they may see. During my first year of Bible college, God had called me to go to 
Dolly's home country of Thailand. And uh, I started encountering a lot of trials. And God was putting me the, through the pressure cooker of those trials to teach me some lessons. And one of the lessons was that of pride. You know, uh, God was, worked all these miracles and opening up the doors for me to go there, supplying contacts and a place to stay. And uh, they wrote to me and they said, well, uh, you know, uh, what about your, you know, uh, providing for yourself? And I was kind of real flippant. I had the best job of my life at the time. And I said, well, I'm putting, uh, um, you know, a few hundred dollars a, a month away, you know, and uh, I can pay for my way. I, I can take care of myself. And then God started bringing these trials and I don't remember exactly all of them, but I do remember one of them is I had a couple of major call, uh, car expenses. Cost me, I think, a total of about $1,000. You say, well, $1,000 isn't that much. But believe me, this is back in 1977, and it was a big deal. Especially to me, I think I was only earning uh, $3.55 an hour on the job that I had. And so that just about wiped me out. And then I had gone home <clears throat> that weekend to my home down there in uh, the San Diego area. And I was talking to my father and he kind of probed around and he got the impression that, you know, uh, I was not doing the, the best financially. And then just uh, maybe a month or two before I left, all of a sudden a letter came from my father and in there was a check for $500. And he wrote in there, and he wasn't a Christian. He said, go, go with God. And so that's really kind of lifted me out of that financial rut that I was in. But see, God was taking me down a few notches, you know. Oh, I can take care of everything, you know. And God says, no, you can't. But I remember during those trials, just one day God said to me, your trials are over. And they were. And so God can do that in your life too. <clears throat> God is able to do this because He is omnipotent. Amen? How many believe God is omnipotent? All powerful. You believe that God can do everything? Anything and everything. He's got everything under control. But He allows these trials in our lives. He gives us adversity. Because you know, with, without it, there would be no reward. There would be no glory. There would be nothing for you at the judgment seat of Christ. You ever think of it that way? You ever try to run a touchdown in an empty field? Well, how'd your team do today? Oh, it was great. I scored 20 touchdowns. Wow. Who'd you be, who, who are you playing against? Nobody? <laughs> There's no glory in that. Unless you're facing adversity and strengthening your faith, when you go, go to the Lord and the judgment seat of Christ, there's no reward for you. You ever think about that? It's true. So God is able to do this. He's omnipotent. He's got everything under control. But even if He doesn't intervene on your behalf, 
Are you still going to praise him? Will you still hold fast to your faith even to the end? Will you still acknowledge that he knows he, uh, he, what he is doing? How many believe God knows what he's doing? Will you look to him and pray to him and try to see what he's trying to accomplish in your life through these trials you face? And I always remember the Apostle Paul in his thorn with the flesh. He was suffering some kind of sickness. I don't care what the faith teachers tell you. It was some kind of physical affliction. And he sought the Lord three times and to have it removed. And each time God said, no, no, no. And then he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that God's power may rest in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. So God was purifying Paul's faith. You know, Paul even says, you know, he got all these revelations from God and he started to trust in his own stuff. And, God's, uh, and uh, he said that uh, God w did the same thing uh, with Paul that he did with me. He took him down a few notches by giving him this thorn in the flesh. So there's two reasons why you get tri trials, brothers and sisters. They are there to purify your faith. And number two, those trials allow God to manifest his power. And the power was on full display in the story that we just read about Paul and Silas. And God can manifest his power in your life too. Can you say amen to that? Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we th praise and thank you, Lord, that uh, even when we go through these uh, trials and tribulations, even when we're weak, Lord, we are strong through you. And so, Lord, help us to lean more heavily upon you. And Lord, when we encounter these trials, help us to do, uh, go through them with the right attitude, knowing that you're trying to do something in our lives, Lord. And we know that you love us so much, Lord, and you give us adversity to strengthen our faith so that we might re receive a reward on the at the judgment seat of Christ. Thank you for this, Lord, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, we're finished.